Black Cats Run Podcast. Win Pro Nats, the method to the madness. back the ultimate practice of hubris here talking about how to guarantee a win at the women's pro national road race in summer of 2023 in the last episode we really focused in on making a distinction between how we want to be thinking about preparing for a race in terms of evaluating the race, what's important, what's maybe not so important. And in focusing on that, I think that what we were able to recognize and identify is that some of the things that traditionally people hone in on really aren't effective. So we talked about the concept of looking at the course and saying that you have to do 10 times this two to two and a half minute effort and that, well, we should focus in on getting as good as we can over two minutes. And we talked about how for any half miler, you know that getting really good at two minutes is not the same thing as being able to go really good for two minutes again and again and again. Some of the best people over 800 meters struggle and can't translate that up to 1500 meters. And that's a interesting issue or topic that maybe we'll do another episode on at some point down the road. But for right now, we're staying in that pro-national wheeled house. So the concept that we did say was important is this concept of fitness. And we came up with a list of, I think if I'm remembering correctly, four or five things that we thought were really critical to think about. Number one, we wanted to train better than the competition because we're racing the competition, and this is more so true in cycling than is true in other endurance disciplines because the cyclists, the people you're racing against, are really going to directly have an overwhelming impact on how that race goes, how that plays out. We also know that we want to try to be in that feel-good space, right? which is one of the overall themes of the podcast. Being in that space is critical for being able to perform at a high level when we're working on our immediate, our short-term, our long-term, and our overarching approach to sport and what that means. We also don't want to apply the zones because the zones are, we'll acknowledge, a great way to study and try to understand what is happening in sport, but they don't seem to work when you then invert those back and use those as your frame of reference for how we want to be training. We want to try to go at a different perspective on how to determine what our level of intensity should be from one session to the next. And then we identified this concept of feet per rep per mile. How many feet of climbing, how much vertical elevation gain do you achieve for on the basis of each individual training session, right, ride or run, because you can, you're also going to see that running is going to be a part of the strategy to win 
the pro national road race and that is over distance and that's different from something like VAM VAM which is basically just proxy for power right and power to weight so and we're saying that there's a relationship between these and the relationship between them i think shows in my opinion um that there is a distinction between those and then overall that leads to the concept that when we think about this race, what we want to be trying to do is we want to be trying to get as fit as we possibly can. That's going to be the way that we're going to get really good um, at this kind of process of preparing ourselves for racing is by building that mindset. And when we take that mindset with us and we organize our mentality and our decision-making around that idea that's going to flow from that, right? So we want to be as fit as possible. We want to be trying to be in that feel-good space. We're not going to apply the zones. Um, we're going to try to train better than the competition, and we're going to try to conceptualize what do we think their level of preparedness is going to be. And we can't have anybody else that we're competing against have a superior or an unbridgeable level of preparedness in any kind of characteristic or aspect of racing. Um, and that you might start to now think about things like, well, what about sprinting? Like, I don't know if I can out sprint certain people. Well, you know, this isn't a straight up scratch sprint situation. Okay. So your ability to sprint at the end of an endurance race, especially a race where, you know, there's going to be 10 significant efforts within that three to three and a half hour period that matters a lot. Okay. So Let's hone in a little bit more on this feet per rep per mile thing. And we're just going to call that FRM going forward in this episode and in the podcast in general. If you reference um, our Instagram page um, and again, encourage people to go check that space out, uh, follow us on there. We're going to continue to post relevant stuff to what we're talking about in the pod and you can join in the conversation there. Let us know what you're thinking about as you're listening along to these episodes. Um, but I've posted on here two graphs for us to reference. Okay. And the first graph is, and I talked about doing this data investigation in the last episode. The first graph is graphing feet per rep per mile, FRM in training against average VAM in training. And each of these points is a different athlete uh, who was registered for or and or started the 2021 uh, Women's Pro National Road Race. And there's a pretty strong, overwhelming correlation that the more feet rep per mile people do in training, the higher the level of FRM, the higher the level of them. Okay. And I think that you might look at that and there's going to be a tendency for some of us to sort of say, well, those are the same thing. So obviously there should track this relationship, but they're not the same thing because feet per rep per mile FRM doesn't have to be at any particular intensity, whereas VAM is looking at power to weight. So another way to interpret this is to just say that people who just tend to do more climbing in no matter how they accumulate that and no matter how intensively they're accumulating that are going to have a better power to weight ratio. And that's really interesting because I think one of the conventional pieces of logic is that 
you have to go and work at a very particular high intensity in order to improve that. But this is suggesting that it really doesn't matter how fast you go. And one of the things as we looked at is we control, I controlled for velocity and I said, well, does velocity and training affect that? And the answer is no. And the second graph here where I, I broke it down by uh, athlete. And all I did for this is athletes who have public um, Strava profiles, you can see the data. So I just data mined that and certainly no disrespect to any of um, the athletes just trying to understand what's going on with the sport. And if any of the people on here are listening to the podcast, um, hopefully you find this thought provoking and maybe gives you some inspiration if you're looking for different things to try or experiment with. Because I think you also tend to see, and it's not absolute, okay? Because there's a, there's some caveats here, which I want to point out, okay? Um, but what you tend to see is that as athletes um, have higher levels of FRM, again, right, you're seeing a higher level of uh, VAM, right, of VAM. And you're going to see in there that I put myself in the data, um, and that's not to be weird, um, but it's because I was doing a lot of the training with Jillian Bennett, um, and in looking at that, you know, I wanted to try to articulate to her that, you know, by doing this training um, in tandem, right, that you're actually training with somebody who is, you know, in this data set, if you will, at a, you know, the higher end of this range. And so what the point of that is just is recognizing that, well, because you're training um, with me, and because my data reflects being at a higher trend in this, then you should feel good about your level of preparedness because it means that right you're doing you're able to do something to match in training uh somebody who is um you know better level of fitness than you know the average level of fitness in the race that you're going to compete in and i think that's a useful benchmark one of the qualifiers here is this isn't like a list of the finishers but i do think that the people who tended to do better are tending to trend towards the higher level of FRM on this list. I think the caveat to this is I think some people are going out and if you're specifically trying to ride up hills really fast, but you have a low volume, I think that's maybe a limitation to the data or it can skew your result and you might really exhibit a high VAM. But if you're doing that in the context of low volume and deliberately high intensity work done on climbs, that's not the same thing as actually having a meaningful fam. And I think that's where we make this distinction, and we're going to talk about it more as we go here because this is important. The distinction between infralactate VAM versus supralactate VAM. And the problem is I don't really have a mechanism by which to divide that, but I would guess people, if you were able to sort this out again, by people who are in training demonstrating VAM in a infralactate state, those are going to be the people who are this list are going to perform better. And people who are exhibiting the higher VAM and the higher feet rep per mile in a supralactate state are going to do worse. And that has to do with the way fatigue works, 
All right. Um, and you can sort of figure out approximately, you know, who's who from this stuff if you want to look at it. Of course, the ultimate way to know uh, who did well at the national championship is to look at the results. But for frame of reference, uh, Lauren Day Crescenzo is at uh, 400 uh, VAM average in training. She had the highest level of people in here. And I know that you can look at the cinch stuff and the Tom Danielson and they've got, and then we should do an episode on this at some point, but they've got like 13 training zones or something like that. And I'm not saying that in a mocking way, but really to get at the point of, I think what actually matters isn't, you know, these distinctions in this particular zone strategy or whatever, but that you're using that to achieve the consequence of that is you're achieving a high um, FRM. And I think if you were using those same things and you were doing it in non-FRM uh, context, you'd have a problem. And it's interesting too, because I think most people know who've done um, a lot of riding and competitive riding know that it's harder to sort of produce the same power on the flat than you can going uphill. And so maybe one of the other things that we're seeing here is that if you ride uphill a lot, you're just going to do more work in general. And that just has a higher adaptive pressure. And as if you're doing a lot of work and it's basically all infralactate, you're probably going to adapt to that. And I think ironically, the superlactate work, which is where people think all the benefit is happening, I think that's the point at which it starts to become unlikely that you're necessarily going to adapt. So that's sort of a key overall framing concept, right? And now what we're going to do in this episode is we're going to try to move further into the implication of that. Because what we said also is FRM is kind of more about a particular kind of thing, right? And so that's what we've done here just to introduce is making a distinction between, well, not all FRM is necessarily created equal, right? And you can have some, uh, to me, the outliers in the data or the differentiation in the data, um, you know, or the red herrings, if you will, are going to be those infra those infralactate versus the superlactate division. So I want to give you an example, a reference from a different context to try to evidence support for this FRM approach. And this example predates um, that data set that I'm referencing here at the beginning of the episode, right? But overall, we care about the concept of fitness. And when I approach a race or a season, um, whether that's as an athlete or whether that's as a coach or whether that's just um, sort of informally or occasionally consulting with people, um, I'm trying to do that from the perspective of how to be as fit as possible because there's no limitation to the value of fitness. And that's really the way that you win this race uh, this summer is by being as fit as you possibly can. And specifically, you need to be fitter than everybody else. And by fitness, I don't mean having the best lactate uh, threshold. I mean having the best fitness. I think fitness is both more specific and more holistic because I think the concept is more complex than we think about. So when we look at this um, aspect, I'm going to show how applying more of this FRM type philosophy, if you will, although I don't like term philosophy all the time, because I think sometimes that's sort of like uh, painting us into a corner in terms of what we think our options are. But I want to show you um, evidence for this. So 
what you need to do when you're interpreting FRM is you need to decide, you know, what is uh, the sport that you're looking at? What is that performance aspect that you're looking at? So I'm going to make a connection between data set that I have from my experience in coaching high school cross country. And I'm going to make the argument, not only are there things that we can learn and transfer over to winning the pro national road race, uh, women's pro national road race this summer, 2023, but that I think this data set is going to further validate this connection between FRM and the pro national road race. So high school cross country, for those of you who don't know, the race distance is 5,000 meters. Season usually goes from end of August or beginning of September through the end of October, beginning of November. And there are sort of these national meets that aren't really through the scholastic thing. And it's kind of this weird gray area. And that stuff sort of pushes to Thanksgiving. But traditionally, you would have a meet on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday, there would be a dual meet, and that would happen every week of the season. And then you'd have champ state championship meet. And then you started to see the growth of invitational meets over time. And now I feel we've sort of been in a transition where we might I think get to the point where there's basically only uh, invitational meets and you're just bringing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and if not thousands of runners together at some of these, I mean, these events are really like festivals or carnivals on some level and just putting them through the course in a series of races throughout the day. And so when I looked at that and I started coaching that and my mindset evolved over time, it was a lot for me, this was a lot of growth um, as a coach and as an athlete because this is the first time I really had an opportunity to, to really coach anything or anybody. And I'm, you know, feel that we made a lot of good changes and learned a lot of valuable stuff through this process and, you know, principles and concepts that I think apply outward into other contexts of endurance sports. My mindset shifted from pretty quickly from we're running 5,000 meters to how can we be as fast as possible over 10 miles? And my concept was I wanted, if at all possible, our team to be in a position where they could sweep a 10-mile race. My last season coaching, we had this meet that happened every year that was sort of um, a, a county area type meet uh, the week before the state meet. It wasn't really a, a county area meet, but that's sort of the best way to describe it. And there's a JV race and a varsity race. And in the JV race, our runners took first through 13th place. And out of the top 24 in that, we had 19. And in the varsity race, we had first, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and ninth. Uh, with two guys, our first two guys were both, I think, under the previous course record. And is this a huge meet? No. But... I think it's significant because it looks at a population of people who are all local to that area, an area smaller than that county area. So it's not like we're bringing in people from a huge pool and trying to find the best people. If you look at the scale of New England cross country, there are some schools that tend to dominate and they're prep schools and they can, I mean, de facto recruit. Um, and I guess you don't have to call it recruiting, but the reality is there's a mindset that if you really want your 
you know, uh, student athlete to have the best opportunity to be really awesome at running. The belief is they need to go to one of those schools, you know, uh, places like Bishop Girton or um, Xavier or LaSalle. Um, and there's probably some others that I'm not remembering off the top of my head. So we're not looking at that kind of a sample size for our athletes. So I think that means that our sample is directly comparable to these other teams, more or less. And I think even adjusting for maybe variance in school size, I think that, first of all, just turnout for cross country is pretty modest regardless. And I think that at baseline, if all things were equivalent, you know, you would have a relatively even mix of people in the top 30 of the JV race and in the top 15 of the varsity race, the top 20 in the varsity race. And I think that actually the JV race to me stands up more. And I thought that that was always more awesome, to be honest, that we had people in that sort of outside of that varsity uh, bracket running really well, because I think oftentimes people can fall into the trap of saying that, well, you know, I'm not on the varsity, so who cares? It doesn't matter. And one of the things that you know, I tried to emphasize to the athletes is, okay, we can't all be in the top seven, right? That's literally not possible. But, you know, you want to look around and look at what other people are doing. And the reality is you're getting to run so much better because of what we're able to do here and what the opportunity of training is doing for you. And I consider, you know, you all to be varsity runners because all of you would be a varsity runner on many other teams that we race against around the state. And I think that it shows then through that, especially the, the so-called JV race, the junior varsity race data shows that at a lower level of competition, aerobic conditioning makes all the difference. Or maybe we don't say lower level, maybe we say at a parity level, right, where we're not bringing in um, people who we think are physiological outliers into a program. But when we're looking at sort of people who are sort of more from that kind of like average population space, that aerobic competition, aerobic conditioning, excuse me, aerobic competition, it is an aerobic competition. Aerobic conditioning makes all the difference. And specialized training kind of looks disproportionately impactful, um, I think, in the context when people have neutralized each other in the aerobic space. So if everybody's executing that baseline and to define baseline, again, I think this has come up in a previous episode, maybe the last episode. To me, baseline is taking the total volume in time that you do over a given week and distributing that evenly um, over the seven days of the week and running that all at zone two with maybe a day or two of zone one in there. To me, that's what baseline is. To me, baseline isn't being a couch potato. And I think that using this idea of a baseline is more insightful. So if everybody is sort of like accomplished or exceeded that level of or met the level of baseline conditioning, depending on how you want to think about that, different ways to describe it, what then happens is the specialized training looks really impactful because other people are have neutralized that aerobic space, right? They've sort of checkmated there. So then they have to go outside of that. Another example of training context would be NCAA cross country, where for men, you're racing 8,000 meters and then 10,000 meters 
um, for some divisions at a championship level. And for women, that's uh, 5,000 meters or 6,000 meters at the championship. Again, depending on division, we should also point out just as a, a side note, but not a uh, unimportant note that here is yet another example of there's no good reason why women aren't racing the same distance. There just, there really isn't. I mean, I, it's just a traditional thing and tradition is never a rational reason to do anything. So if I'm looking at that example, I'm also asking the same question to be as fast as possible over 10 miles. How can you get there? This isn't a coincidence that I think about this 10 miles thing. I think that 10 miles is pretty similar to lactate threshold, and which is sometimes determined by about what you can do for an hour, or it's analogized to that concept. You know, like in cycling, they think of lactate threshold as being really specific to predicting what somebody might be able to do for like a 40K time trial, for example. And, you know, obviously we want to acknowledge that depending on your level of conditioning for running, you know, you might not be running 10 miles very close to an hour at all. And then at that point, maybe it's like nine miles for you or eight miles for you. But picking that distance that you think you could cover if you raced hard for an hour, that's probably approximately what that is. And so that's like a pretty significant step above. Okay. And that's for a race that's 15 minutes, 25 minutes, depending on the individual, depending on the course. And in that context, right, I'm thinking about how good we can be over 10 miles. The pro national race, we're looking at a race that's whatever that is, sort of in the 70 plus mile range in the three hour to three and a half hour range. And so then to take that and say, well, we care about how good we can be for two minutes. That's going in the totally wrong direction. You know, I would want to be able to say, how well could I do? I mean, among other things, you know, I was going to pick something particular, though. I would say, how well can I do for 160 miles? You know, I'd want to be able to not just ride 160 miles. I'd want to be able to be able to feel really good for 160 miles. Because if I can do that, then I know that I'm not going to have any issue with that distance of the race and distance being proxy for the, you know, duration and therefore the energy demand because endurance is the most important thing here. It really is. And that's what happens is people work on the two minute thing and then they don't get a good result from that. And in working towards that goal, I think what we want to be thinking about specifically is that training happens in a more incremental way than I think people might sometimes assume like people take the zones and they say okay I do the zones and I do that for x number of weeks and now I'm in shape and I go out and I race I think you have to train to train to race I didn't come up with that phrase myself but I really like that because I think it really articulates exactly what we're talking about you have to train to train to race and so that's sort of picking that concept of 10 miles or 160 miles or in some cases, if you're picking two minutes, you're deciding what to train for. And then from that point is going to affect your ability of how you train uh, for the race. Although I will say that if you're picking a two minute concept, you're probably not training to train. You're probably just training to race. And I think that's one of the other limiting factors. Because I do think there's value in doing things that try to access the race. Like I wouldn't say don't try to do the effort that you're doing up Sherrod Road Climb. But I'm not saying that you should organize your entire training progression around targeting that effort. When we look at 
what happens with these cross-country race culture. I think it's indicative of a broader problem, and it's an issue that we would want to avoid in looking towards our goal. And I, I call it the marathoner approach, um, by which I basically mean race avoidance. I think this is incredibly stupid. I think it limits the ability of the athlete to develop the cognitive engagement with adversity, to develop their um, race intelligence, however you want to describe that. Also, races are good training. And I think if you want to get good at going up that hill on the Knoxville course, then you know you want to go out and do races. And that's going to be better than doing intervals because intervals are not specific to the act of racing, you know, despite what people might claim to believe is the case or assert is the case. They're just not specific to that because it's totally artificial, you know, unless you're going out and I don't know, doing 10 times a hill that's pretty steep for about two minutes and 15 seconds. And then in between you're riding relatively steadily with some variance um, of effort, unless you're doing that um, for, you know, and doing that 10 times over and taking maybe 15 minutes of steady riding in between each rep, you're not being specific. And guess what? Now what we're talking about is we're talking about basically doing the race course. Okay. Um, and if you could do that, that wouldn't be necessarily a bad way to train per se. It would certainly be better than just, you know, doing VO2 max or anaerobic capacity intervals to try to improve what you can do for two minutes. Let's use now this cross-country stuff, now that we've kind of like articulated, I think sufficiently laid out the baseline, let's use this data from that period, that coaching period for me, to try to validate um, this concept that by approaching it from this perspective, um, this FRM perspective, which is where my thinking is at now, that this is going to be more effective for us in terms of what we're trying to accomplish athletically. So there's another post on the Instagram that uh, you would you could take a look at for this if you want to see what's going on. And what I did here for this is I took the individual placings of our team's varsity runners versus the state top seven. So if you don't know, the top seven runners are varsity runners in cross country. Um, the top five runners score, the uh, team with the lowest score wins, and it's based. your score is based on your placing, right? So if you finish first, that's one point. If you finish fifth, that's five points. And then the seventh, um, sixth and seventh runners don't score, but they can displace. And then if they run better, maybe, maybe some days they're sixth, and then if one day they're fourth, um, they, could do, they would do that. And on our team, there was very little variance which I think is actually a sign that people were running well because I think people people are consistently running to their ability, then the results, the finishing order should actually be pretty consistent and should be unusual for people to um, suddenly beat people, at least over the scale of one season of competition that's basically only two months long. And when you look at teams that have constant shuffling with that, to me that's, okay, there's something going wrong with the training, or there's something going wrong in terms of injury or something else, but those basically are factors we don't have. So if you look at this graph, uh, you know I coached this team from the 2013 through the 2018 season, and the 
yellow diamonds are the placings our individuals got. And I put this on the scale of first to 120th place. And my first year coaching, I think we might have been the worst or second to worst um, placing team at the state meet out of probably approximately 20 teams. And then you can see, right, the state is going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then the next two years, we had one runner uh, finish, I think, sixth. And you can see that. And then you look at though our yellow dots that we're starting to close the gap. And then, you know, so there's sort of gradual improvement from 2013, 2014, 2015. And I think there's arguably a meaningful jump um, from 2013 to 2014. And then, and that could just be saying that, okay, the coach has come in, he's applied his thing, the team has improved, you know, first year it's new, second year, okay, and that's kind of where you're at. But then there's another huge jump to 2016, all right? And then in 2017 is sort of uh, the peak in terms of the data, and then 2018 also very good. And the last two years, the athletes won the championship, and in 2016, um, they they were second by, I think, maybe four points or something like that, so extremely close. So if we look at this um, in particular, um, and we try to zoom in here a little bit more by just looking at first through 30th, you can get a clearer visual of this in terms of um, where we're placing, right? And you see in uh, 2017, we went first, second, third at the meet. And that was a pretty big deal. Um, that had only happened one other time. And that was like in 1963. And the level of participation and number of teams was, I think, a little bit different at that point. And we go to the next one, you're going to see that the uh, team top seven versus state top seven with peaking. So this was in 2013, 14, 15, and 16. Even though we had that big jump, I would argue from 15 to 16, um, we followed taper and peaking workout protocols, you know, based on what I could find um, in the literature that was available uh, to me, I tried to put that stuff into effect. And I don't feel the results are very good. And I would argue that um, the reason why the athletes weren't able to win the championship meet in 2016 is because we had done that peaking practice. And if we hadn't done that, I think that they probably would have um, won that meet pretty handily. Uh, and then that would have been, you know, interesting too, because I think it would have further offered evidence for the data. But because of that playing out the way it did, I think it actually proves kind of another interesting point. So we also have a graph where we say, well, um, what does it look like without peaking? So this means that now you could argue, right, from one point of view, well, you must have peaked because look at how well you did, you know, and but we didn't because we didn't try to do that. We just kept doing the stuff we were doing. We backed off the, you know, aspects of training where it's sort of like, this is what you're going beyond to create this stress for adaptation. And we just pulled back to like, what's kind of the normal level. We didn't try to pull down. We didn't try to do any sort of fancy training or workouts. We maybe made the workout um, 15 to 25% shorter you know, we cut the number of reps. So instead of doing 20 times 200, we did 15 times 200 on the Wednesday before the meet, the meet being on a Saturday. 
But, you know, as we had before every single uh, invitational meet and as we had for every standard, um, you know, steady aerobic to easy aerobic day, we went out and we ran nine to 10 miles. And then we did some 150 meter strides on the grass. That's what we did. And significant improvement in performance. And it's especially when you look at the long-term data set, right? We're doing this and then they're basically running probably, you know, kudos to them because that was, I think, by any objective measure, the most, um, you know, dominant, impressive performance by a team in the history of the state in that sport. And then if you look at it, you know, in the year 13, 14, 15, where there's no emphasis on this kind of, you know, feel good mindset variable that I've talked about, that's when we're doing uh, pretty poorly by comparison. And, you know, the other thing is it looks poor in hindsight because of what happened the last three years. But those first three years, you know, not very good. Okay, really. Yes, there's that jump, but, you know, we really only have one runner um, in the top seven in the state. And if you really want to be competitive or really, I think that, you know, again, what's, you know, you got to look at the average and you got to be above that curve, above the average curve of progression to really reach a conclusion that your training approach is being uniquely effective. Because otherwise the conclusion is, well, you could put the athletes on any team in the state and they'd probably run within a standard deviation of the times that they're running on your team. And you compare that to when we started focusing on that feel-good concept. And this is when we really started talking about uh, the zones. And I used the zones from cycling. I took those seven zones, um, and I took kind of the, the diagrams of that, and I had a big poster that I hung up in the locker room showing those. But we didn't have power meters, and we weren't using heart rate monitors, so we talked all about it uh, in terms of how do we feel. That's how we were differentiating what we were doing, Okay. And that's when things started to get better. We also added this variable in 2016. We added longer run. And this is when we added um, a run that was about um, 15. I don't remember, to be honest, exactly what the distance was, but it was probably about two hours. It might have been 15 to 16 miles that year, but it was a loop that was really hilly. And at the time, I wasn't thinking this needs to be 100 feet feet per mile. This was sort of before I took that and uh, canonized that as the golden rule or the gold standard. Um, but we had that in, okay? And what that was doing is, right, we're focusing on a FRM type concept. And the training sessions also had developed to kind of an FRM type concept too, where now with running, you can accomplish FRM without necessarily going uphill. But we would do a lot of work, right? We covered a lot of distance um, with that level of intensity. So when we're doing higher volumes of repetitions, right, or specific training. So for example, one team, other teams are going to do, um, you know, six times 800. We were doing 15 times 800 in sets of five. So what that meant, right, is that out of the total running we were doing, we were doing more FRM type work because in running, when you increase that intensity into a higher state, but it's still sort of like in that lactate balance and you're still trying to have what I would say, I would say in those contexts, you are maybe going into supra lactate periods, but the aggregate training workout is designed to sort of 
in a feel sense, feel infralactate throughout. And I do think that that matters, I, that that distinction in terms of how it feels does matter because you can do a workout where you have work intervals where you might be sort of technically uh, in that super lactate state or at that lactate threshold or whatever. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing in my concept when I'm trying to articulate. And I think if you look at some of the stuff that we would do specific training sessions, it would have been really cool to have a lactate test protocol. It would have been a pain to do it even if you could do it just because of the nature of the workout. But it would have been really interesting to track the lactate levels of, you know, those the top 15 runners, you know, the runners who are running 1530 to 1650 uh, for 5,000 meters, you know, at some of those those last two seasons to see what were their lactates like after every single repetition, you know. Was that was that accumulating, right? What kind of a work rate was there? And then to look at that against heart rate data. But the reality is we didn't need to do that in order to get the results that we got. It just would have been an interesting perspective to look at insight into this. Okay. And so, and then in the 17, 18 season, the run, long run specifically was 17, 18 miles um, with 1,700 to 1,800 feet of climbing. And that sort of became a more specific emphasis but adding that component in and then shifting those the training sessions in that way those were big variables the overall volume of training i don't think increased by more than maybe 10 to 15 miles um, for the top runners on the team um, and so that really means maybe like an hour and a half of additional training time per week, time spent exercising per week, you know? So it's not like, again, this concept of you were making, you're making them run a hundred miles a week. You were just having them do elite training. Well, first of all, we want to try to train as best as we can. That's the whole point of the sport. And I will never really be able to understand why people want people to do bad training, which seems to be the implication of that criticism um, but it's also just inaccurate to say that we were training in that particular kind of way. And essentially what you start to see um, when you look at the data is that the period where we did not peak and the period where we were doing feel good, that's when we saw the best performances. That was that 2017 year and the twenty. 18 year and in the 2017 year um if you put the entire rest of the state and as its own team we still won that meet as i think i've referenced this before in other podcasts and episodes and, and that's because this to me was like a really significant uh insight into seeing really how this stuff works and trying to understand that better so if you've also heard this stuff talked about in other episodes you know here's your frame of reference for that if you want that concept uh, to refer to. So I think that really shows how when you shift your mindset around this stuff and you're willing to get outside of focusing on, because when I wanted to be conscientious, uh, when I started coaching, you know, I, my initial thought process is, well, I'm going to make sure that we apply this stuff correctly, you know, and I think a lot of people think that. And, you know, for different factors, I think I was more willing to um, try different things. And I had different um, you know, influences and perspectives on this stuff from my, you know, early experiences too. 
Um, in particular, you know, running my, my uh, dad was able to do, frankly, um, you know, running 407 in the mile, you know, on some pretty slow indoor tracks um, in, you know, 1980 or 1981 um, I, without doing any interval training. I was something that always had stuck in my mind and really made me think differently about this idea of needing to reach those peak intensities. And then the fact that I always struggled with the intervals made me really try to pull that stuff down. And when we really weren't seeing any results anyway that were any good, it encouraged me to try to develop, um, you know, some of the stuff in the, in these directions. And so through that experience, I think that is an interesting sample. And obviously, some people are going to dismiss you know, the validity of looking at um, evidence, performance um, evidence from uh, high school cross country and applying to that the women's national road race. And that's fine. You don't need to win the national road race. The other people can win the national road race. Because if you do the same thing everybody else does, you're just going to get the same results. And so if you approach the pro national road race in the standard way, the average way, you're going to be average and you're going to finish at the average level, which means that you're not going to even make the final selection because majority of people don't make the final selection. And Jillian Bennett got 13th um, at the road race last year. And I would argue, you know, and I in no way is this a criticism, but I would argue really not anywhere close to the level of fitness that she's capable of being at. And yet nonetheless, by applying, you know, the kinds of concepts that we're looking at here, such as FRM, we're still seeing a high level of performance. And it really raises the question of, in the instance of that athlete, what would be possible? That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So what about road cycling in particular? What kinds of other differentiations do we need to understand to try to get at how specifically we're going to apply this concept now that hopefully we've sort of evidenced that there's these instances when you organize around this principle, it's effective. And that number two, it doesn't mean simplistically just saying, well, let me just pick the literally just pick really hilly rides and do that, right? It needs to be more uh, complex and the decision-making needs to be more involved in that. So road racing uh, when we're talking about longer races, we're talking, um, you know, the shorter races really are when you consider a criterion. But unequivocally, the sport um, is very different from what we're talking about with running, especially when we think about traditional middle distance running. And I would say middle distance running, maybe we can say is anything less than a half marathon, which if you're purely a runner might seem crazy. But if you look at the scale of the things people can do in endurance sports, at this point in where we are with sporting competitions, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, a half marathon is a pretty short distance. And we're seeing people, frankly, even within the sport of running, you know, these ultra marathon distances have really uh, been redefining that, as we've mentioned before on the pod. So the criterion, I think, sort of takes the place of that middle distance race. And I think you see 
the most prevalence of middle distance running mindsets and even quarter mile or half mile or mindsets in particular. And I feel that within the sport of criterium, there's sort of like training paradigm tension between people who are basically applying uh, this sort of like El Caballo um, approach. And uh, by El Caballo, I'm referring to Alberto Juan Terreno, uh, Cuban uh, from Cuba, um, former Olympic half miler, um, but just somebody who is just also incredible over the quarter mile and trying to focus on that aspect of it versus people coming uh, at it from sort of the mile or 5,000 meter mentality of doing a lot of volume. But what's significant for us about this criterion is I think finding that sort of benchmark of what's the sort of shortest acceptable distance is always where you find those training concepts extend. And then you build up from that point. So these road races, um, especially like a three to three and a half hour road race, doesn't really seem long in the scale of um, you know the road cycling culture. And obviously when you look at the prevalence of stage racing, whether they're, you know, the sort of amateur three to four day stage races that go on uh, in the States that anybody can participate in, or if it's uh, world tour stuff with one to three week stage races, obviously we can do different things on the bike in terms of racing, in terms of just the amount of time and the frequency of racing than you can do with running. It's just a different uh, utilization of the body. But, you know, that benchmark, I think, is a part of what's dragging people's perspectives away. And it's easy to start feeling, and it's easy to build up. I mean, relatively speaking, right, compared to for running, it's much easier to build up to a a 70 mile ride than it is to build up to a 20 mile run. You know, I would say that, you know, if you're motivated and you pace yourself, you could probably go out and ride 70 miles um, if you did it on a rail trail. Um, as a person who's just sort of is a generally active person, you don't need to be doing any kind of particular specialized training to get to that point. And so I think what it does is it creates this illusion that endurance isn't the most important characteristic, but it is the most important characteristic. Um, because yes, step one is to keep up, okay? Um, but then step two is to keep keeping up. And we need to do that in the right way. We can't be trying to keep up by extending the sort of modalities that people are using in criterium. And I think in criterium, it's probably, you know, 50, 50, 60, 40, but it's in a space where I don't think there's overwhelming evidence that doing this one particular approach is what makes you effective. It's just like in half miling. I don't think that there's one specific method. And when you get to the half mile, you have to train in this way or else you can't be good at it. I just think there's a lot of runners who just don't want to be stuck only in that half miling space, partly because they want to race other distances. And if you become a half miler, then you sort of train in this way where you basically can't do other things because you just don't have the endurance or the capacity to do that. And so we see a fundamental lack of endurance. And that's one of the key characteristics to recognize at any attritional road race. Um, But in the women's road race, uh, you know, I've gone to this twice, uh, once when my brother did it, and then I went in 2021. And it's, you know, tough as a spectator, to be honest, to watch the people out there going up the hill the first time, because you go across the bridge over the river, and you're basically into the hill almost immediately. And, you know, I was standing on the hill on that first lap in 2021. And 
it's tough when you to watch people who you know are must be like excited and motivated and just be like wow they're just not able to keep up um and i feel for that you know i empathize with that as somebody who has wanted to be good and be in the race and so many different you know periods of my athletic experience you know it sucks to to be in that position but i don't think that's an inevitable outcome i think that a different approach would you know, empower those people to have a completely different result. Because I don't actually think that, you know, overall, it's inaccessible um, to keep up in the race. I think, you know, obviously, only one person is going to win. And I would argue that we're just at a point right now with that particular race event, where we're not at this aerobic equilibrium, where everybody is sort of getting to the um, level where they're all executing that aerobic piece. And then it's about, you know, other things you're trying to find, you know, nuances, or wrinkles, or really applying um, the best tactics. But it's like a Cold War sport in general, endurance sports is a Cold War sport, you're stockpiling weapons of mass destruction um, every time you go out and train. And then in that sense, like, you know, you've got people who have nukes and people who don't, and it's not really fair um, in that sense. It does. I don't mean it shouldn't be done like that. It's just not fair in the sense of like, if you don't have that, like you're not on that same level. You're not in the same playing field, even if you're in that race. And I've been on the receiving end of that so many times. I mean, just my brother trying to go out and do exercise with him, you know, it feels like you're getting nuked into oblivion, just trying to follow his wheel for any length of time. So in that race, right, there are opportunities to save energy and to maximize maximizing energy by working together. And some of this stuff is true of road racing in general. Uh, It's true that whoever attacks last wins. Um, And it's true that you have to be willing to lose. Uh, And that means you're essentially, when we break that statement down, uh, you have to be willing to take risks, right? And if you're too anxious um, about the possibility of jeopardizing yourself by using energy, then you're going to lose the race. And that's not, you know, meant to be a belittlement. It's just a fact. Like you have to expend energy um, in the race at some point, right? I mean, like we just said, who attacks last wins implies that there has to be some point in which you make some sort of an acceleration. Um, And, you know, you could get caught, right? You might make energy uh, expenditures, you know, play out in the race in a way that uh, don't work for you. Or somebody else could lead to a situation in which you're forced to make an energy expenditure. Um, And if you get caught, you could be at a disadvantage. And that's the biggest reason why people don't want to attack. So you need to be prepared to neutralize that. And, you know, you need to take those risks and you need to do work in the race um, while not also increasing the probability that you'll lose the race. And so what we want to do is we want to take the risk out of risk. And you want others to believe you're taking a risk. But because they don't understand your level of training and preparation, because they're stuck in this paradigm of preparation, right, where they're keying off of the criterion. And the criterion is really significant in American cycling right now, because that sort of seems to be one of the big focal points for people who are serious and kind of want to be that elite, sub-elite, pro, semi-pro space. That's sort of where they primarily have to operate. And so as a consequence, I think like the most, like our environment shapes who we are in so many ways, and we're responsive to that environment. And it takes a lot of independent thinking and resilience to be like, I'm not going to gravitate to the norm of the sort of social space of the athletes 
around me. And, you know, I will acknowledge that I have always been really independent minded about this stuff. And it's, and I know it's comparatively easy for me to sort of be like, I'm not getting sucked into this, that, or the other thing, but for other people, it's not that straightforward. And I think that we want to recognize that, you know, those social pressures are real and that's a part of like the norms of the Peloton and the way in which people can try to take advantage of our inclination to sort of fit in or whatever and manipulate that. And it's, if you've done bike racing, you know, people go out there and they yell at each other. And I don't know if that's good or bad in running. I've just sort of used to that not being a thing. And I think that may mostly be because uh, you can't talk because you're, you know, at such a peak, you know, ventilatory state throughout the whole competition. It's really unusual for people to be able to talk, especially because running has moved away from encouraging tactical racing to just everybody going out absolutely time trialing the whole way. But I guess yelling at people is really like the norm. Most sports, people yell at each other constantly. So the fact that it happens in cycling uh, isn't really unique, but right, that's another aspect of the norms of the Peloton, right, is peer pressure and social pressure. And I think that we want to recognize, though, that as much as there is that sense of, you know, social constraint and social pressure, it's also true that there's a really fixed mindset of what's possible and what's the reasonable uh, range for your level of endurance. And that's going to apply to you as an individual. People are going to think you lack the capacity to do certain things. And most people are going to tend to assume, if especially if they don't know you, that you can't do anything. Um, I think that's the bias of people who find themselves in positions where either they are um, high performing, high percentile athletes, or they're just in an environment where they're treated or regarded like that and sort of sense of, well, I'm in the in crowd. So if I don't know you, you can't be any good. Otherwise I'd know you um, and really limited logic, but that's also an advantage for you. Uh, Cause a lot of athletes are fishbowling themselves in that way. And if you take yourself out of the fishbowl, well, I believe you can gain an advantage because then, you know, you can feel good because being in that fishbowl is a safe place in a sense, but it's not a good place. It's not a feel good place. Okay. It's a safe place because you're eliminating and controlling threats. So threats to your esteem, threats to your perceived norms matter. And so you can leverage that, that people aren't going to expect you to be able to perform. And, you know, people are, especially if you have people who are operating on the world tour level, I mean, it makes sense. It's not, it's not a, a logical conclusion, but you're going to assume that you already know who all the good athletes are, right, on the bike, and that everybody else is sort of some form of a, a scrub, um, in essence. And I'm sure people are much more polite about it. But if we're honest, I think we would all agree that we tend to apply that mentality to people that we don't view as being insiders. But what we're trying to then get to is this norm-breaking concept of fitness, where essentially you want to be able to hammer the entire projected duration of the race, just like a runner would. And so that concept doesn't mean, by the way, that we're suggesting you're just going to ride off the front in time trial, because as long as people want to catch you, they'll catch you. You know, it's just really not realistic to do that period in a road race when there's that many people. I mean, in, in gravel racing, it's interesting because you kind of see the potential for that kind of stuff, just because of the way 
um, the terrain is just so disruptive and eliminates some of the level of efficiency of drafting. Of course, it doesn't eliminate drafting because air resistance is always a thing. But a runner can put the hammer down for any given time duration or distance. There's a effort they can go to and, and go hard the whole way. And if you're not sufficiently conditioned, you know, it might be that just going at zone two is that effort, right? So we're not trying to apply that as the race strategy um, or as a tactic, but that's the level of conditioning we need to be at because that's where you're getting at this point, the point where you're taking the risk out of risk. Because if you can do this, then you're going to be able to go out and execute these efforts and you're not going to have to worry about, you know, what happens if somebody comes up to you or you're going to think about it, but you're going to be able to respond because you can go, you know, you have that three and a half hour, you know, effort in your bag where you can be going at that highest sustainable level, probably in, you know, aerobic threshold, um, you know, somewhere in around there to, you know, but certainly below lactate threshold, right? But you're sort of looking at a really high level of performance at that uh, a higher infralactate state. And that is where you want to be. That's your fitness goal because that's going to protect you, okay, from fatigue. And that's an extension of that concept uh, that when we talked about in the first part of the episode, when we talked about how do we approach um, the idea of training and racing for cross country, that, you know, I looked up a measure of expectation but went down a measure in terms of, of intensity, right? So there's this contrast that's emerged now. You can focus on the intensity, which is the intensity of maximizing what you can do for two-minute efforts, or you can focus on this concept of, I need to be able to build this kind of intensity, this kind of infralactate VAM, VAM, through the process of focusing on this FRM um, feet per rep per mile. And when you do this, I think now we're starting to really frame, right? What is our key mindset going to be around this stuff? Let's acknowledge though some bad interpretations before we go further, all right? Just so that we're all on the same page with this. Uh, focusing on the peak power required in the race and training for that is a mistake because if people are doing a peak power in the race, um, and they're doing well, then that's not actually their peak power. And if you're actually hitting your peak two minutes in the race, then either in training, you weren't actually ever doing that, um, which is good because maybe that means you were training at a more reasonable uh, intensity level, which is more productive, um, or you're hitting that peak power, which means your race is over because you can't do, you can't set a PR for two minutes, okay, any more than you could set a personal best again and again and again in the half mile. And I'm talking about like a true personal best, not a, oh, I haven't run this event before, so everything is a personal best. You can't set a personal best level effort, you know, 10 times in a row. That's just absurd, right? And so expecting us to, to do that um, is stupid, whether that's an expectation you're applying for yourself as an athlete or whether that's an expectation uh, coming from a coach to you. So, you know, do not do that. You aren't running the mile. And even for milers, that's only a small percentage of training. 
you know, and it's this whole VO2 max complex of people are looking at data or evidence that says, well, when you do these VO2 max intervals, oh, look at this cool intervention. Here's some some study that says that it raised LT by X percent. So here's a strategy. We can do this and then we'll be better. And you, if you want to go ahead and, you know, test this out for yourself, uh, you can, but I would strongly advise against that. You know, if you want to burn your incense um, at the altar of that physiology, you can do that. The more accurate understanding of this, and this feeds into validating the approach that we're advocating for here on this pod, uh, is to say, well, if you backed off that VO2 by 5 watts, 5 watts, 5 watts, 5 watts, and each was an additional group, what would be the return on lactate threshold? Okay, and then the other thing you'd want to do, and this would be harder to do, is you'd because you'd have to access to data is difficult, and that's why one of the sorts of uh, experimental thinking exercises that I do is sort of create these. Um, uh, I mean, some of the graphs that I'm sharing are actual data, but then also you know create some models that reflect what it might look like, just as a way to sort of like challenge our thinking and try to imagine and what do we think might be possible. But you'd also want to look at what's the correlation between lactate threshold and placing uh, at these races, because I think that would be really indicative of to what extent we also should care about that. Because, you know, then you're now you're just like training to raise. Now you're training to improve your results on a lactate threshold test. Okay. And, you know, it might actually be better for USA Cycling if they had a lactate threshold test day, <laughs> you know, championship. Maybe they would be able to do a better job of recognizing the people um, who are really, you know, getting it done on the bike uh, because there just aren't enough races to do that. And, there aren't, and then you just have collusion um, among riders, you know, not necessarily bad collusion, but it's just inevitable, right? Riders are going to collude. It's the nature of cycling. And that just going to keep people out, elbow people out, because the incentive for the professional rider is to not lose that status. Okay. And you can be supportive of other people up to a point, but after a certain point, like you're literally being asked to work against your self-interest. And I think that's unrealistic. So a more universal standard concept of fitness, right, which is what we're targeting is aerobic capacity. So essentially this FRM thing is better for developing aerobic capacity. And that's why you see that VAM go up. And that's where you're going to see that VAM be below those higher lactate levels. We're going to see that be infralactate. And one of the things that I've come across recently that I really liked um, is people talking about making a distinction between endurance and lactate threshold. And I also want to combine this with something that I really like from Steve Magnus, which is this idea that, and I'm sure this has come up before on the pod, but it's worth reiterating that we're really prone to this interpretive bias where we focus on the things we can measure. And that's a natural consequence of the scientific method, but we also want to use our our brains and our, our thinking capacity, you know, in other ways, you know, and then, that's because that's what allows us to sort of set targets for what are other things that we can look at. Like I'm still have my fingers crossed. I'm predicting uh, someday somebody's going to come up with a mitochondrial count um, tool, and that is going to you know blow things uh, wide open. That's going to be a crazy paradigm shift, and I I really think that um, 
you know, some people are going to work towards that. I don't know enough about the biochemistry to know uh, how realistic that is, but people try to measure things by proxy too. So I wouldn't be surprised if somebody tries to kind of find some sort of an algorithm where they can proxy that. But, you know, people used to think that, um, you know, the sun revolved around the earth. So, right, we know that things can change just because we can't conceptualize it. It doesn't strictly mean it's not possible. But, you know, looking at that and talking about the mitochondrial stuff, um, and I like trying to learn more about these things that I don't consider myself to be super expert in because that's interesting to get, you know, just like challenging yourself in a race, trying to challenge your level of knowledge and understanding is really engaging. And the idea is that endurance and lactate threshold aren't the same, okay? And I think you can also credit um, the three millimole uh, model of the Norwegians um, and this sort of three zones or five zones with three zones and two soft zones. Um, but some of the stuff from um, the, I would, you know, give kudos acknowledgement to listening to an episode of the Empirical Cycling Podcast and then listening to some um, podcast interviews with Indigo San Milan, who is uh, Tade Pagacar's uh, coach or coach to some degree. Um, who knows what's going on there with doping, but regardless, you know, we may never know in some cases with some of these athletes. Um, and I think that fitness at its core is rooted in the space between and including endurance and the lactate threshold. Um, there's endurance. There's this sort of stuff in the middle that some models are saying is totally useless. And I'm saying that that's not true. I think that that's become a myth um, that that's totally useless um, or it should be dispelled as a myth. But right now, I think uh, it's something that people have actualized as a truism. I would define in a practical sense LT as really being the level of effort you can reasonably maintain without feeling a fixed point of failure on your horizon the moment you start doing it. It feels indefinite even though it isn't. I also think that uh, actionable LT, uh, let's call actionable LT, uh, let's make that a thing. We're starting now. Uh, is variable from event to event. And its intensity or effective velocity may increase as you get closer to the finish line. And that's when we say being really fit that you can put the hammer down. That means having this actionable LT. So not maybe physiologically true lactate threshold, but trying to have a development of threshold that really specifically targets um, that idea of just being able to sustain a really significant effort for an extended period of time. And some of the mitochondria stuff, um, I think is basically suggesting that, um, you know, that's a product of, you know, or that's reflected by or connected to the processes that are also connected to having uh, really high levels of mitochondria. And I think, yes, right, you know, you're not gonna pull the group the whole way, but in a conceptual sense, if you wanna think about what actionable LT means, it kind of means the ability to be able to ride at the front the whole way and then still reasonably sprint or respond to moves or to make a selection. And that's not physiological LT again. Um, but I think this actionable LT is more important because it's something you can leverage and it can help you understand you know, how you can train more effectively. And I think runners, for example, just know what it's like to be hammering 
but also know you have a freaking cupcake waiting in your pocket. And cyclists just draft too much. So unless you do just a ton of serious and longer climbing, it's harder as a pure cyclist or somebody who only cycles to really relate to this feeling. But like what we're talking about, this is like straight up stronger, not the I'm drafting soul come off of your wheel, ha ha ha, kind of stronger, like, but like the I can ride you off my wheel. This is what my brother likes to do to me and other people whenever he can. Uh, you know, different people have different forms of entertainment. And maybe at the highest level of the sport, you might think this isn't realistic. But I think, first of all, this is what happens in the tour and what happens in the classics all the time. I think the people that we're seeing winning basically are exhibiting something that fits with the concept of actionable LT. Um, and the idea of that sort of like raising as you get closer to the finish because the distance is contracting and so therefore the potential intensity um, would be higher. I think where do you think the concept of the finale comes from? You know, that you have like the last hour-ish of the race, right? You know, that's where you're getting to that, right? And there's kind of an interesting connection all the way back to the cross-country example of how can we, how can we be really good uh, for 10 miles or about an hour being really important, right? But making that, coming at that from a different perspective of, well, we do that by just going out and doing LT intensity training. And training at LT, like it's your kind of your target pace, you know, your marathon pace equivalent of, you know, whatever, you know, race distance is dumb um, because it's not really that useful because your body and your brain isn't going to be performing like that. And I'm reminded again of, um, you know, the Mariana Voss comment or what's attributed to Mariana Voss is saying, I don't care about threshold because, um, you know, races are decided over threshold. and two by 20 minutes isn't like a preparation session at the end of the day, right? Specificity means you get better at what you're doing. And so you're getting better at doing two by 20 minutes. And you know, maybe if you were going to do something like that, I, first of all, just wouldn't because it just sucks. But also if you're going to do that, that should happen very early in your, in your preparation, right? If you feel that, well, that's going to build something that's then, going to then allow me to get this purchase on this next thing. It's not a direct to end product outcome. So you want to set a task that's more than the race. And what we're going to build up to here for conclusion is defining uh, in our concept, how are we going to know if we're fit enough? And then we'll do one more episode in this. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about how do you get to that point, because that's going to be different for different people. So set a task that's more than the race. And that's hard because you have to be have the awareness and the willingness to reflect and be able to know what that would mean. And you need to subdue the difficulty of the task then as much as possible. So you have to know a task that's harder than the race, and then you need to subdue that to the greatest extent possible. In simplest terms, if you master something that's harder than the race, you're going to win the race. It's, you know, again, right, very simple articulation of something that is very difficult to get to. It's a classic example of easier said than done, you know, and the caveat here is in a running context, like you would just objectively win the race is what we're talking about here. 
because if you've mastered something more difficult than the race um, and you know you've whoever does that the most well they're going to win because they're the strongest all else being equal and cycling it's more complicated um, because of like dynamics of the race in terms of other people have way more of an impact on your ability to do what you want to do but we can talk about tactics too um, and that'll be like again maybe talk about prevailing themes in the podcast overall so we sort of have our target and we know it's not training for the race but it's to be as fit as we possibly can and how do we do this well we're talking about not getting tired like getting to this sort of tireless state and i think if you take another historical reference back uh to um arthur lydiard and if you're hearing this name come up and you're not familiar i really recommend uh reading running with lydiard it's a super short book uh, you could probably get it online somewhere and i think it's just it's a really key uh historical moment in the development of training and i think it helps make a lot of things make sense okay that people are talking about and it also helps you see things that don't make sense so and that idea of not getting tired was in there okay and that's not super compensated per se um that's what it will look like in hindsight okay we just need to get to the point of being tireless and i don't think we do that by overthinking about things like are we super compensating are we doing this are we doing that and one reference point is that idea of the base period right the lydiard book has a big difference on this uh but the uh vanderpool speed skater um did a really impressive version of this, which we've talked about earlier, but you know, how to skate a 10K, you can find that PDF online. That's really thought-provoking and fascinating to read. So I think we're looking at a combination of running, cycling, lifting, and other miscellaneous things. Another point I would make um, is speed skating, not just uh, that particular article, but if you just look at speed skating and where the sport is in general, um, like cycling and non-skating activities are done all the time. So I think the, the cultural and the social norms in running and cycling is that to be a runner or a cyclist is to do running and cycling and never sell the two meet or, you know, cross paths, you know, lest the universe collapse into a massive black hole. And I don't think that's necessarily a valid way <laughs> to look at this stuff because, you know, from that how to skate a 10k you know that his aerobic period or i think is what he calls it basically isn't skating at all you know he doesn't really seem to start skating if i remember it correctly until he gets to the threshold period and i also think our running cycling lifting and you know maybe some other things that you know you sort of happen across that you determine to be effective has to be supported by a cognitive approach okay that that is one of being reflective and trying to like think about where we're at and not just assuming that everything is going to work out because we have some particular method and then we'll just like, you know, you know, plow all of the potential bumps out of the road. That's not what good training models do. Good training models aren't effective because they eliminate, um, you know, adversity in the process towards a goal. Okay, good training models are effective because they let us get in better shape. Okay, we still have to like engage with the reality and the fabric of the landscape in which we're in. And, you know, putting ourselves in good places, right, is important. We want to be strong. We don't want to be skinny. Okay, I see athletes struggle who look like they might, you know, be bigger than what we perceive the body type norm to be. And I see athletes struggle who look like they're smaller. And I see athletes struggle who look like they're the right size. 
Yes, right? There's some tangible physics that says that, you know, your body weight matters, but we're talking about, um, you know, power to weight and that you can increase your power to weight by increasing your power, contrary to what the cycling world mean, you know, might mean when they say that. And it's just a bias too, because most people are more sedentary and in general, they probably benefit from being a little bit leaner. So for a lot of times it's it's appealing, but sometimes the process of trying to get more power might actually be the best way to end up losing that weight if you hypothetically really were in a position where you needed to lose weight. But trying to be skinny is a waste of time. Trying to be skinny is just going to make you slow. Okay. You know, try to be strong. All right. And then your body will become the kind of athletic body that it's, you know, capable of being. And then that's what you want to be focused on. Feeling good is going to be what is going to empower us and allow us to execute all of this. And sometimes people say, well, I can't make these changes. You know, I can't do that. I can't get in that space. And I just think, you know, that's fine. I can't run a 400 meter, uh, you know, race in 50 seconds. We all have limiters. Um, And if we can't overcome them, then that's a line in the sand we can't cross. You know, I mean, I'm not going to run the quarter in 50. And I guess if you can't make those changes to that feel good space, then, you know, it's not a way around that is what I'm arguing, right? Like I'm limited by my ability to be a world-class runner because I just don't really have at the end of the day, the ability to run that fast. Okay. At that bit level of basic speed. And, you know, by the same token, if we can't get yourself in the space, that's going to make training effective, then, and you just can't do that. Well, that's a limiter. And I empathize that stinks. Um, but it's necessary. And I think the nice thing is the feel that feel good state is, is more easily uh, attainable and athletes do a lot to succeed. So why do people feel it's so unreasonable to try to put yourself in a state where you feel good? So here's what I think it should look like. I think if you can get to May and you can do this program and I'll, this will be posted on Instagram. So if you haven't seen that on there already, you go over, take a look and see what I'm referencing. I think uh, if you can do this uh, 21-day training routine, and you can do that um, at a state of homeostasis, then I think you're going to be ready to win the race. All right, I'm going to read the schedule for those of you who um, aren't on Instagram or uh, don't have that available to you. Day one, eight miles, 60 to 65 minutes run easy, two-hour ride easy. Day two, same thing. Day three, six by 2K run at the infralactate state, ride 80 miles with three times 15 minutes within the ride, also at that approximate infralactate state. Lift 10 by 5 by 150% of body weight, squat and deadlift. Day four, same as day one and two, eight miles in 60 to 65 minutes, And then we're also, right, you know, two-hour ride easy. Day five, eight-mile run, two-hour ride, and then second lift, same as before, 10 sets of five reps, 150% body weight squat and deadlift. Day six, eight miles, two hours. Then we're looking at seven, right, which I think traditionally would be Sunday and running we tend to especially associate Sunday with like the long run, run 20 miles at the gold standard level, 100 feet per mile, go out and ride 60 miles. Okay. 
then the weeks repeat as before. So you're looking at one, two, three, four, five days where you're running eight miles, you're doing two hour ride. And one of those days you're doing your second lift. Okay. And then the next week on the third day of the week, you can do 6K run, infralactate, then 30 minutes of running zone two, and then eight by 30 seconds, 60 seconds at super lactate. Then ride 60 miles at the gold standard, do the lift. Okay. Get your lift in on one of those days with the sort of the easier days of running and riding. And then, you know, your long day that week, run 10 miles zone two aerobic, right? Steady aerobic, ride 100 miles zone two, at least 50% of that gold standard. All right. Then the last week, six by 2K run, infralactate is the, is the first session with the 80 miles, the lift, and then the three by 15 minutes infralactate on the ride. And then on the last day of the three weeks, 20 mile run, gold standard, 60 mile ride. If you can do this by May, and you can get to the end of something like that for three weeks and you don't really feel like you've gone through some training camp or gone through something, you'll win the national championship. Okay. Now, I guess one of the reasons why I can confidently make that statement is I've serious, I would be shocked um, if anybody uh, actually gets to the point where they do that. Okay. So I guess the part of it is you can't prove me wrong, right? Unless you actually go out and do it. And if you go out and do it though, I really... I would put money on you on you winning. I don't gamble, but um, I would put metaphorical money. I would put monopoly money on you winning the national championship if you if you could do that. Because if you can do that, you're at a totally different level, okay? And you're just not going to get tired, and you're going to have that kind of actionable LT potential, and that's what we want to see. So. In this episode, we have moved towards a concept of trying to conceptualize what does it mean to win the national championship? And we've talked about that in a perspective that might be very different for certain people. And it's not about accomplishing a peak workout. It's about getting to a level of fitness where you're doing stuff that not only is nobody else doing or willing to do because they're too committed to their established paradigms of sport, but we're also talking about doing it at a a way where that's normal, where that's routine. And I think if you look at that kind of a schedule and you think that's outrageous or insane, it's really not. It's actually a pretty unremarkable schedule in the grand scheme of the kinds of things people do for endurance sport. And I think that when you look at a specific event, like again, we're talking specifically about the women's pro nats race in 2023 for what that race is, if you can do the schedule, you're going to be untouchable. It's just, that's just where it is. So in the next episode, we'll do one more for our pro national road race exploration. And we'll talk about what now is the all important question. How do you get to that level? How could you get to the point in May where that's what you're doing for three weeks of training? And it's just three weeks of training. Thanks for making time to listen to the podcast. I hope you're finding it interesting and 
thought-provoking. If you are enjoying the pod and you know other people who would also enjoy this kind of stuff, we'd love to have you recommend that to other folks. Please also uh, check us out on Instagram and follow us at Black Cats Run. Use that space for dialogue. If you have questions, perspectives, ideas, sources, you know, or other topics that you want to see covered in the pod, let us know. Leave a comment. Send a DM. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you.